What's the most vibrant city in Europe today? I'd say Berlin. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and Germany's thriving capital, Berlin, has emerged from its Cold War cocoon. It's bursting with energy and full of new things to see and do. Berlin is a place you have to come and feel how exciting it is. It's a city that changes all the time. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Lee Evans fills us in on all the latest from his Berlin train station information booth. And Berlin is just one of a world of hotspots for today's gay and lesbian traveler. Later this hour, we'll talk with Ed Salvato, the travel editor for PlanetOut.com, a leading source of travel information for gay and lesbian globetrotters. We perceived this need for some clarity around what the offering was for gays and lesbians. So Out and About came out as a consumer report. We raided certain places and talked about how gay-friendly they really were. Berlin and gay travel, plus your calls, are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Move over Munich. Berlin has become Germany's most exciting urban destination. Coming up on today's program, we're calling a friend who runs a tourist information booth there to get all the latest on Europe's most rapidly changing city. And later, we'll get acquainted with Ed Salvato, the editor of an online travel guide for gays and lesbians, to find out just what's happening with the gay community in travel. But first, we have time for some calls and emails about your travel plans. We're at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We got Frank on the line in Orwigsburg, Pennsylvania. Where are your travel dreams taking you? Well, our travel dreams, they're taking us to Austria for 17 days. Wow. And it's... uh, I don't know know if I've ever met anybody that spent 17 days touring around Austria. How are you going to fill that time? I could spend a lot more time touring Austria, but we we love it so much. Now, what do you like about Austria? Because for most people, that's... uh, They see Salzburg and Vienna, and then they're on to something else, right? Well, you know, I think a lot of people just hit the the highlights and and move on. And uh, my wife and I have found that we we like to settle in 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 small towns and just explore and um, do a lot of walking and and, and learning about the subcultures within within a region and it, mm-hmm. we just find it fascinating good for you well well let's let you let's turn the tables here i'm planning my trip to austria and i'm just going to do the big stuff tell me where i should go besides the big famous places there's there's just so much more to see and experience in in the smaller places for instance we'll be flying into vienna but i'm renting a car and we'll spend a few nights uh, up on the on the uh, zemmering uh, Vienna's local mountain, if you will, and uh, we're just going to just enjoy ourselves for a few days and take a few side trips from there, then work our way down the southern route around to Salzburg, spend a few nights there, and then spend the rest of our time in an apartment on the outskirts of Vienna and either go into Vienna or take day trips by train from Vienna to small towns. Now, Semmering, is that the the foothills of the Alps there, basically? Yes, it is, and the the famous uh, Semmering Bahn, the first Alpine Railroad. That's uh, right. Going over to Zemmering Pass. Oh, that's right. Now, I find it so sort of exciting to think when I'm in Vienna and I look at those mountains coming out of nowhere, and I think that's the very beginning of the Alps, and they arc all the way across Europe and dump into the Mediterranean at Marseille. That's right, and they end just just beyond there at the Hungarian Plain. That's right, and then you've got all the wonderful uh, new wine, uh, the vineyards up there. Oh, yes. Some beautiful walking, and I think where you're going is where a lot of the Viennese like to go uh, for their little breaks from the big city. They do, and, it, and it's, it's only an hour by train. They spend their weekends there or just go out of town just south of uh, Vienna down you know, near Baden and Eisenstadt, places like that, right. and, and enjoy the wine in, in that neck of the woods. Now, Frank, what's your experience with the Danube River Valley and the Salzkammergut Lakes District uh, south of Salzburg? Anything? Well, we're going to be spending some time there. Uh, I would like to maybe do a little bit of traveling down into the Salzkammergut because it's not a very far trip. Uh, right. The Danube River Valley and the, and the Wachau, it, it has a completely different character from the Lakes District and from Vienna. We, it, you know, the character changes in a very short distance in Austria. Oh, it's incredible. You, you get out of Vienna. And by the way, Vienna is one of the great cities of Europe. Absolutely. It's, it's, sort, Absolutely. Of the, it's sort of the eastern Paris, the capital mm-hmm. of the Habsburg Empire. And it just feels like the capital of a grand empire, but they started in lost World War I, basically. So now it's the grand capital of a little insignificant uh, landlocked country, <laughs> frankly. Um, but you get about an hour out of there and you're on the Danube River. I was there with my family biking along the... There's beautiful bike paths along the Danube. Yes. 
Our apartment is just north of Vienna in Klosterneuburg. Well, Klosterneuburg is a famous um, monastery, right? With yes, some, the Augustine great art. Uh, Monastery, great. Um, very famous. If you have a car to tool around the countryside of Austria, I think that makes things a lot easier. It's a, it can be a little frustrating from a public transit point of view. Yeah, what we're going to do is, is rent a car for the first week. And when we work our way back to Vienna, I'm going to turn the car in and then we're going to take public transportation from there on. Remember, I think one of the most powerful and um, impressive concentration camp experiences you can have in Europe is at Matthausen. Yes, we're, we're planning that. Right on the Danube, right in the mm-hmm. most romantic part of the Danube, ironically, you've got this gripping concentration camp, which is on a, a big quarry, and they had what was called the Stairway of Death, yes. where the inmates had to hike down and, and work in the quarry, and they basically worked people to death in mm-hmm. this camp. And, you know, it, it feels like more of a living memorial than Dachau does, which is very effective, but kind of a more of a museum. At Matthausen, you still have flowers on the memorials and mm-hmm. photographs of people who, relatives uh, who were victims there and so on. So make that a uh, part of your checklist, and then uh, and then you can get into the romantic part of the Danube. Uh, consider biking. Consider the great abbey in milk. You know, yes. I get I get, yes. I get crems and milk mixed up. It's just like milk and cream. <laughs> uh, but the two nicest towns in the Danube outside of Vienna, they are milk and crems. And, and just down the road from there, Dernstein. Oh, Dernstein. That's where um, King Arthur was kept prisoner, isn't it? I, uh, Richard the Lionhearted. Richard the Lionhearted. Thank yeah. you. That's it. You could probably pay to sleep in his bed. With his faith, faithful minstrel, uh, Blondel. Yeah, and then also nearby there is where they discovered the Venus of Willendorf, the very oldest piece of European art, yes. five, five times as old as the pharaohs. 30,000 years old. It's amazing. People were... It is amazing. Even back then, making uh, fertility symbols. (laughs) Big, big women that they would worship for fertility, you know? (laughs) Frank, I hope you have a great trip, and uh, I'd love to hear how it goes. I will. You're going to be an an expert in Austria, 17 days exploring things other than Salzburg and Vienna. Well, it will be my third trip there, so I'm learning a lot about the country. And you know, it's nowhere near as expensive as Germany, so you can eat very well in Vienna these days. Oh, that's right. You're absolutely right. And all over Austria, you can eat well there compared Mm -hmm. to Germany, I'd say. Good luck on your trip, and thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Okay, bye now. Bye. And we have Lydia on the line from Prescott in Arizona. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I am actually planning a trip to New Zealand and Australia. Okay. Now, a couple of years ago, I used your wonderful books. They were awesome when I went to Europe, and I missed them. I want them for New Zealand and Australia, so I was wondering if you had any plans. Well, thank you for the kind words. You know, one reason my books work for people is because I'm determined just to stay focused on what I'm really passionate about, and I can focus all of my research energy into making those books in Europe uh, more accurate all the time. So Uh I'm really uh, determined to stick to Europe as my beat, but there are a lot of great guidebooks for Australia and New Zealand, and, um, you know, uh, most cities have a travel specialty bookstore which is very helpful because the staff there really knows the personality of those books because every book has a different personality, and it's important to match it with your style of travel. If you went into a travel bookstore and said, I like Rick Steves' books, but they don't, he doesn't cover you know Down Under, mm-hmm. they would say, well, if you like Rick's books, you've got to try this or that for New Zealand, and, and they would really know what's available there. Okay. Yeah, but good luck on your trips. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. 877-333-RICK. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Dorothy from Dayton emailed us, and she wants to know what overnight train should she take from Munich to Prague. As far as I know, there's three trains a day direct from Munich to Prague. It takes about six hours, and one of them is an overnight train. In Europe, a lot of times, they let the overnight trains go a little slower, so you get a longer night's sleep out of it. And uh, you don't have much choice for the overnight trains, and um, I would highly recommend the overnight train because you arrive in the morning, catch a cab right at the train station straight to your hotel. They probably won't have your room ready, but uh, leave them, they'll lock away your bag for you. You can have breakfast and uh, wash your face, brush your teeth, and get out there and enjoy that great city. Overnight into Prague from Munich uh, might make a lot of sense. We have Charles on the phone in Irvine, California. Thank you for including me in your program. You bet. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. I have a solo trip planned to Italy, and I have often trudged the back roads of some small towns in Italy uh, using the trains for transportation. I am a senior traveler and have used what the train Italia calls their silver card. I was having much difficulty trying to ascertain whether they still offer that card. I normally prefer to use it uh, and then go point to point because I'm just not organized enough to buy a rail pass. Now, right. I hope I'm not missing something in that regard. What was the name of that senior card you were talking about? It's called a silver card. In Italy? In Italy. 
Huh. Because it can um, only be purchased in Italy. I just I'm just looking at my Italy guidebook and it says the carta d'argento. D'argento. I guess that's silver, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, or I thought that was the word for money, but probably the same thing, huh? And uh, it's if you're 60 or over, you buy this card, and it costs you 30 euros, so that's about $40, and then you get 20% off of your tickets. Now, that is bought at train stations in Italy. I would remind you that Italy is great at changing rules and regulations, and every time something's available that's just too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true, and next year it's uh, been changed to be uh, good enough to be true, you know? But um, if you're traveling around Italy, I find it's very reasonable to go by train anyways. It's like $25 to go from Venice to Florence on the train. Mm -hmm. So figure the main jumps you're going to take, Venice to Florence, uh, uh, Milan to Florence, Florence to Rome, figure $25 a hop. You know, that's pretty reasonable. $20 on the two-and-a-half-hour ride from Rome to Naples, for instance. And that's second class. And remember, all over Europe, there's a formula. It costs 50% more to go first class. So if it's $20 second class, $30 first class, and you've got to decide, is it worth the extra luxury? If I'm trying to get some work done, I'll spend the 10 bucks to have two and a half hours of relative peace and quiet in first class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are you going in Italy? I'll be spending two weeks in Tuscany. And as, as I said, I travel independently and not knowing where I'm going. But I, I may either go over to the uh, French Riviera area to visit some relatives, or I may go south to the east coast, the Adriatic coast, to visit okay. relatives there. But no plans. Well, that's a nice way to travel, isn't it? I love it. Yeah, I think you'll be impressed by how well the buses connect the towns in Tuscany. And remember, most of those towns in Tuscany are up on hilltops where the trains don't go anyways. Yeah. And if you stop at a town, if it says uh, Assisi, well, it's going to be in the valley floor. And when you get off the train, you better hustle because this is designed for commuters who do this every day. And they walk straight across the street, get on the bus that's coordinated for that train landing, and they're on the way very efficiently to the town square of the hill town. And generally, that connection is included in your train ticket cost. Oh, very good. Yeah. That's point to point? That's point to point. Yeah. Hang on to that ticket. Try to use it on the bus. But even if it's not, it would cost you a buck for the bus or something. You don't want to miss that bus because there may not be another bus until the next train arrives. Yes. Buses are typically coordinated with the arrival of the trains to get you where you want to go if the train has to stop for whatever reason far from the town center. Interesting. Charles, have a great trip. Thank you very much. Ciao. Bye. Berlin is a particularly welcoming place for creative and energetic young Germans, and it's emerging as a top European travel destination. In fact, compared to Berlin, Munich is now stale pretzels. We'll get all the latest on Berlin from a man who runs a tourist information service there, coming up next as we travel with Rick Steves. Later this hour, we'll meet the travel editor of Out and About, an online travel guide for the gay community to hear what's hot and what's not for gay and lesbian travelers. You're traveling with Rick Steves. Oh, shut up, madame. Happy to see you. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and I would like to take you to Berlin, because Berlin's one of the most exciting happening places in Europe right now. I have with me on the phone from Berlin, Lee Evans. He's a, a former Washingtonian who now calls Berlin home. Lee runs a, an office called Euraid at the main train station in Berlin, and he's dealing with travelers' needs day in and day out, and he joins us now to get us up to date on what's going on in Berlin. Lee, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. How's it going? It's going good. Berlin has got to be one of the most action-packed, energized cities, at least in Germany, but I think in all of Europe. Uh, what's what's the news in Berlin lately? Well, you know, it really is. Um, it's Berlin has stayed off the tourist radar for so long. I mean, being a divided city, kind of an island in the middle of East Germany. But now, after the walls come down, um, culture that has always been here has just exploded. I mean, we could sit around and we could talk about four different opera houses that have music going all year, 200 museums. We could talk about all of that, but really Berlin is just a place you have to come and feel how exciting it is. It's a city that changes all the time. Huh. And we go home to America to visit my family. We come back a month later, and it's a completely different city. It's a nightmare from a guy like me trying to write a guidebook that's accurate. Definitely. Um, telephone numbers changes. Um, addresses change, postal codes change, everything changes. It took me th- earlier this month about three weeks to figure out where the Nefertiti was because it's so up in the air all the time. After I saw you last time, I went straight to Munich, and I couldn't believe how Munich pales now compared to Berlin. And I always thought Munich was the place to go in Germany. But really, um, if you're interested in urban energy, it's got to be Berlin. Now, it's not a beautiful city as such, but it's just a fascinating city that has been mended back together, and it's developing into, it must be exceeding the the vision of the people who wanted to bring it back together. Um, how, how is that going? They made the, uh, uh, what was no man's land, you know, uh, what uh, Potsdamer Platz is now this incredible office park. Um, but the city really is a city of villages at the same time. Berlin really doesn't have a discernible city center um, because it's not really a city in the classical sense. It's a collection of about 28 villages that grew together, and each of these villages has its own city core. Um, So really Berliners have no need to leave their district to get things done. Um, I live in Charlottenburg, which is a district of West Berlin. Um, We used to live in Friedrichshain, which is a district of East Berlin. And back in the good old days, we'd never have any other reason to go to the other district because everything that we would need is within maybe 100 or 200 meters of the house. Back in the old days, they had all the they had the great Egyptian collection out there, and now all of the museums are being brought back to the center as the city is no longer two separate cities. So maybe you could still feel the village and the community in Charlottenburg, but from a tourist point of view, aren't things being come, brought to the middle now? Definitely. Berlin is gravitating east. For all intents and purposes, the historical core of Berlin is Mitte. Um, the, the district called Mitte, which is literally means the middle. And that's, is that the Brandenburg Gate and Unter den Linden Boulevard? Right. Um, technically, I would say that the middle of Berlin is the intersection of Unter den Linden and Friedrichstrasse. Now these big changes are happening, and guys who write guidebooks like me are stuck with our favorite hotels in a region that's no longer really central and necessarily the logical best place to make your home base, and guys who provide tourist information like you are stuck in a train station that's going to become just a glorified subway stop in about a year. Isn't that right? where I work at Zoologischer Garten, um, this was a suburb, um, kind of an upper-end suburb 100 years ago. And a lot of West Berliners had gotten used to the fact that um, in a divided city all around the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church, that was the center of town, and that was the center of West Berlin. Well, in a unified city, the historical core, the district of Mitte, is where all of the interesting sites are. And as Berlin gravitates back in that direction. Kurfürstendamm, the big main drag where you would see Gucci and Hermes and Cartier, um, these shops are closing, and and Kurfürstendamm is really a a shattered remnant of its former self. Okay, now just so people know, that's like the Champs-Élysées of West Berlin back in the Cold War days, 
And exactly. I, that was the big fancy shopping zone. And let's talk about the hedonism that, that is sort of the heritage of the Cold War, because my feeling is during the Cold War, when it was when Berlin was a little island of freedom and capitalism in this greery, dray, uh, communist world, uh, a lot of uh, uh, benefits and financial incentives and, and so on went to stoke up the economy and the liveliness of Western Berlin centered around Kudam. And... Uh, Today, uh, that sort of hedonism, that love of life survives, doesn't it? It does. When I first uh, came to Berlin in 1986, um, West Berlin was a city where anything went, where anything goes. Um, you could do anything at any time of the day or night. Kurfürstendamm was the place to be. Back then, couldn't any young guy get out of the draft just by moving to Berlin? Definitely. There, um, because Berlin was an island, technically belonging to West Germany, but not really. West Berliners didn't have passports that said Germany on them. They said that they were citizens of Berlin. Um, All you had to do to avoid military service was move to Berlin, and that, because Berlin couldn't have a standing West German army there. Now, you take it up to today, and you still have this craziness, but it's spilling out all over the place. we got the famous Love Parade and the gay—what is the gay pride parade, the big deal there? Christopher Street Day. Cri- well, this isn't a result of the Cold War. This is just a ongoing part of the way that Berlin was. I mean, um, after the First World War, Berlin had exploded in population— during the Weimar Republic between 1918 and, say, 1932, it was the, the decadent world of Christopher Isherwood kind of dancing on the, on the knife's edge where you could really do or see anything. Um, it's where people like Kandinsky and the Bauhaus movement exploded, and okay. then it all ends in this economic downturn which eventually brings the Nazis into power. Now, when you when you talk about the spirit of anything goes in Berlin, I, I'll vividly remember standing on the curb with a bunch of what was, seemed like senior citizens to me, a lot of people out there walking their dog and just going home from a cup of coffee or something, and here comes this gay day parade or this love parade and this just techno festival, and all of these hedonistic, far-out, just incredibly obnoxious, obscene things going on in the backs of flatbed trucks. And I, I looked at the seniors around me, and it was like these guys in the flatbed trucks were trying to offend these seniors, and they couldn't do it. The seniors were just laughing at them. Right, because anything that you could do now or in the 80s, these seniors had done it and seen it all Ten times worse in the 30s. <laughs> hey, Berlin, all right. Now, now let's talk about Berlin's been united for 15 years, um, and uh, there's a lot of people that were comfortable during the communist days, and there's a notion called ostalgia, which is uh, nostalgia for the eastern, ost is east, so the old eastern ways, the communist ways. You know, for especially for older people, they're the generation that sort of gets the shaft with all of this change into, into, free, um, into capitalism because they lost their security and their pensions and so on. Are there people that have fond memories of the communist days, and is there a sense that there's some people in Berlin that aren't necessarily happy with the way things are going? Well, yeah, I'd be one of those people. I have extremely fond memories of East Berlin in the 80s. Um, but me aside, there, the, the movement of the nostalgia, the nostalgia movement, I think that the big problem, you have a lot of kids who are now um, remembering back to things that they could not possibly remember. So the other man's grass is greener kind of politically or something. Definitely. Yeah. Um, A lot of older people remember great things like guaranteed employment, uh, kindergartens, um, activities, crime-free and graffiti-free streets. Cheap ice Um, cream. Yeah, so it's... Oh, great ice cream. Um, So there's... A lot of people look back, I mean, and, and we do it in America, too. We, we have this kind of nostalgic view of what the 1950s was like. Right. Um, and not all the time is our view of the 1950s exactly the way that it really was. Okay, so it gets romanticized. I guess that's human nature. Definitely. One of my favorite new spots in Berlin is Karl Marx Alley. Or not new spots, but a place that's getting a lot of attention lately. Karl Marx Alley was uh, just completely destroyed in World War II. Stalin rebuilt it to make it his grand showcase boulevard, and uh, it was called Stalin Alley. And uh, then it was just run down and run down, and now it's sort of, uh, sort of revitalized and trendy and expensive to get one of those old social realist apartments, and uh, uh, what's the deal with that? Well, the Karl Marx Alley is actually my favorite part of Berlin, um, because to the naked eye, it looks just like a stretch of um, what most people call 
um, wedding cake style socialist realism. A lot of people say it looks like Moscow. It does look a lot like Moscow. In fact, a lot of the buildings are patterned after some buildings in Moscow. And um, if you look at other capitals in the Warsaw Pact, Prague has buildings like this. And, and right outside of Warsaw Central, there's a big palace of culture that looks the same. But today, all of a sudden, those apartments which you couldn't give away one time are now quite expensive, aren't they? Yes. In fact, it is one of the few places where a diehard communist can still get an apartment. They are very trendy, and the entire street from Strasburger Platz to Frankfurter Tor is uh, protected, federally protected historical monument. And what did you um, mean? What did you mean that it's one of the few places a diehard communist can still get an apartment? Because the apartments were given away or given to loyal party members and people with political affiliations, it's very difficult to evict a German out of an apartment. Oh, so, so some they, of these guys—they're grandfathered in. They're grandfathered into these apartments. And they, they've respected that as the uh, times have changed. Yes. Fascinating. Now, I was just uh, at a cafe down there that's, I think, near and dear to a lot of people who are nostalgic or nostalgia about the past. Cafe Sibyl, it's called, I think. Yes. And what, what you got this old, uh, there's some sort of a, a ice cream sundae that, that they serve, and they just remember the 60s by eating this uh, vanilla ice cream. And uh, they've got a, they used to have the biggest statue of Stalin anywhere in Europe, I believe, was on this street. And today it's been destroyed, but the mustache of Stalin is still on the wall in this cafe. Right. This is really kind of an interesting story. Um, the Karl Marx LA, or the Stalin LA, as it was originally called, it was, the foundations were laid in 1949. And, and the whole idea was to build a street that was wider than the Champs Elysees. The history of East Berlin is actually bound to this street. In fact, the first uprising against the communist system started as a result of increased work norms for the people building this street. When Stalin died in 1953, the, the street was named after him. Um, and even after Khrushchev denounced Stalin in 56, the East Germans were still so fond of Stalin that the street remained Stalin Alley until 1961. There was a huge statue of, of Stalin, and it did stand there until 1961. So this place is really part of the soul of communist Berlin. It is. Really. Uh, now, in one night in 1961, the party hierarchy decided that, well, you know, it's time to change, and, and there's rumors that Moscow kind of flipped some switches there and made them feel guilty. Um, but all at once, overnight, every street sign on the street changed from Stalin Alley to Karl Marx Alley. Huh. Every map hung up in the city, the street name was changed. All the subway stations were changed, everything. Um, so what do you do with this huge bronze statue of Stalin? Well, you get four or five loyal party members who are construction workers, and you swear them to secrecy. And you pull the statue down, and you take it to an undisclosed location in East Berlin, and you make sure that they destroy it. Well, what happens? Well, with any true party member realizing the historical necessity of whatever the statue represented, they make away with the mustache and the ear. The mustache and the ear can still be seen, even though the statue's gone, at the Café Sibylle. And this is, if you're walking down the Karl Marx Alley, this is the best place to stop because they have a display of what the Karl Marx Alley looked like um, and the historical development of, of the street. And it's also kind of one of these culty, nostalgia places. And you go in there and you have your coffee and what's called a Schwedenbecker, the Swedish cup, uh, which is vanilla ice cream with applesauce. Um, and you can still pretend that it's 1961 for a little while. Takes you right back to the communist 60s in Berlin. Hey, Lee, one of the interesting things I found was this Prince Lauerberg. And uh, it's just sort of the happening, trendy neighborhood. And I went to, I've been visiting East Berlin ever since the wall fell uh, every, every couple of years. And at first it was sort of a post-nuclear war wasteland with a bunch of freaks just sitting on rusted old barrels uh, smoking things. And then it got more artsy and trendy and, and still edgy. And now the edge is kind of off. And it's like all these guys who are covered in tattoos and piercings are responsible young parents. And it's so interesting to see uh, people that looked like freaks a few years ago living in the same col colorful area, but raising families and a, a sort of a it's morphed into a very fun-loving but decent and comfortable zone for us to call home in our travels. Now, that's just my take. Talk a little bit about Prince Lauerberg for us, please. It's, it's like freaks find soap. Um, <laughs> Prince Lauerberg, 
was always kind of a counterculture part of East Berlin. Several different resistance movements, the environmental library, were all centered there at the Zion's church. After the wall, uh, it was it was run down, um, and it was a place where if you were into this alternative culture that had spread to West Berlin, you could go there and occupy an apartment, and it became yours after a period of time of no one claiming it. Because nobody wanted to live there after that. Because nobody wanted to live there. And now it's probably quite expensive. It it, it only took a couple of years um, before these people started realizing what beautiful old turn-of-the-century houses they were. Now you have in Prince Auerberg these beautiful houses, and the rents have skyrocketed. Um, But it is one of the more clean parts of Berlin with lots of good restaurants, some good museums. Funky Um, restaurants just lining the street. Definitely. There's lots of places. It's just a place where you walk around and you feel good um, because nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, it's just very pleasant. I had um, a, Lee, I had a field day there doing my research, and we've got somebody waiting on the phone that would love to talk to us and ask, ask a question. Uh, we got Nancy in uh, Palos Heights, Illinois. Thanks for your call. Do you have a question about Berlin for Lee? Uh, I do. Uh, my husband and I were there six or seven years ago, and uh, when we looked for an Internet cafe, we just could hardly find one. Uh, we were told that there were only two in the city. Uh, we did find one that was in a, a dark department store, tucked back in the corner of a upper floor. And we had just come from Prague, where an Internet cafe is on almost every corner. And um, a lot of entrepreneurs have, have opened Internet cafes. And I was just surprised at the, at the contrast. Now, has Berlin caught up in... Um, Places where you can access the Internet? Well, um, part of the problem with Berlin was that the meshing of two completely different phone systems still today makes it incredibly difficult to get a phone connection. The flip side of this is that all of the new phone connections are all digital. So I can think of at least four Internet cafes within 100 meters of my office. Um, Most hotels and hostels now provide Internet access. Um, it's all digital, and as I was walking down Kurfürstendamm, I noticed that McDonald's has a has a hotspot for wireless internet. Um, so it's just another example of how things have changed in Berlin in six years. I mean, you wouldn't even recognize the city now. And uh, what is the Dunkin' Donuts has an arrangement with Easy Everything now? Right. So you uh, go to Dunkin' Donuts, and they've got fifty terminals there. Look for a Dunkin' Donuts, and you'll find an internet cafe. Well, I guess we'll have to go back. Nancy, thank you very much for your call. You're very welcome. And we've been talking with Lee Evans from Uraid in Berlin. Uh, Lee's uh, website is www.uraid.com, E-U-R-A-I-D-E.com. Uh, there's a Uraid office in Munich and one in Berlin, and they are a godsend for any traveler traveling by train and enjoying uh, Germany especially. But, uh, boy, they know your questions before you'll ask it. They're hired by the German National Railway to help Americans traveling and enjoying their country by rail. Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Outside it is winter, but here it is so hot. Every night we have the battle to keep the girls from taking off all their clothing. So don't go away. Who knows? Tonight we may lose the battle. There's much more just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to learn about gay and lesbian travel. And we've got with us Ed Salvato, who lives and works in New York City. Ed's a Harvard grad, and today he's the travel editor of Out and About, which is a website that uh, claims to be the world's top information source for gay and lesbian travelers. Ed, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. So you're you're really the number one source of travel information for gay and lesbian travelers? That's right. We've been around for the longest compared to our, I guess what you call our competitors, for about 13 years. Wow. Yeah. And And we serve a market of about 5 million uh, visitors a month, and um, we have about 3.5 million active registered members. So so it's a huge universe. 3.5 million uh, members. Are most of them uh, from the United States? Um, we have global reach, but the vast majority are, I would say, North America, mostly in the United States, yes. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about this. I know this is uh, 
uh, an area of confusion for a lot of travelers. I get a lot of questions about uh, are gay people welcome here, uncomfortable there, safe here, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a nutshell. What, what's the trend for gay travel, and uh, what's hot, and what are your favorite destinations? Well, you know, sort of answering the first part of that question, I mean, gays and lesbians have, of course, always traveled, you know, as long as there were gays and lesbians and as long as there was a way to travel. But about 13 years ago, we sort of perceived this need for some clarity around what the offering was for gays and lesbians, because a lot of businesses, say guest houses in particular, were sort of putting out a shingle saying, oh, we're gay friendly. But there, there was no, it was sort of the Wild West. There was no, no one sort of like policing that to a certain extent and seeing if claims are really true. So Out and About came out as a almost a consumer report, a magazine that was by the editors for subscribers, and there was no advertising. So we were able to say, well, this place, we, we rated certain places and talked about how gay friendly they really were. We even looked at the industries, cruise industry, airline, hotels, and talked about how gay friendly they, they were. And so that actually helped. Not only were we chronicling gay travel at that point, but we were helping in part to shape it, too. Hmm. So, so that's really fundamental, I think, to understanding that. But um, sort of to answer your question more broadly, um, or m- more recently, um, there are lots of lots of really great hotspots right now for gays and lesbians. I mean, I can go and talk about that for hours and hours. Okay. But We want to get into that later, but let's talk more in general terms here for a minute. Ed, first of all, uh, for gay travelers, I suppose gay travelers travel anywhere as, yes. as long as they feel like, well, here's a place where we're, we're not going to be like... Um, 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 sort of uh, harassed or abused. Harassed, or yeah. I mean, but there's certain places you're just not going to be outwardly gay, and other places where you're going to celebrate your gayness. Sure. sure. Um, so that's that's one issue for people, and, and then another issue is places that you would go that are like exclusively for gay people, and then sure. the other question would be places that you'd go where where gay people won't have a problem, but it's a kind of a whole mixed scene. Sure. Um, if you're traveling, let's say around Europe, where would gay people find? that they're less comfortable. Europe, if we talk about sort of Western Europe, tends to be even more, in a way, gay gay comfortable and gay friendly than most of the United States, for instance, because there's just a different attitude towards homosexuality. It's not really... uh, Here in the United States, there's a religious element to it and kind of a social element, which is which they've sort of, uh, they don't really have there as a, in more sort of secular areas of, West, of Western Europe. So, and, and you get some places in Europe that are far more progressive than most of the United States, um, where, for instance, in Amsterdam or um, Holland has been really at the forefront of this, allowing gay marriage, and as well as um, Belgium and the Scandinavian countries, and now even Spain, France, England, all these places which accord gays and lesbians sort of uh, an equivalent status in terms of their legality of their relationship, that actually sort of um, translates into an an increased acceptance and comfort level. So throughout Western Europe, gays and lesbians are really super comfortable. I mean, especially the capitals, Berlin, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, London, Paris. So you would say how gays are treated legally in a society, from that you can derive how they would be received as travelers. Absolutely. I mean, you actually have seen it already with Vermont and Massachusetts in the United States, and even in San Francisco when it allowed gay marriage. Vermont has civil unions, Massachusetts allows gay marriage. Now you see the government, sort of the CVB, the tourism bureaus are starting to um, reach out to gays and lesbians. They're, They're putting them in some of their advertising. They're treating them like every other member of society, which is sort of just to say equally. And so that translates out there as a perception that, that gays and lesbians are every bit as, as equal uh, as so, everyone else. So as, as that might be novel in America, that would not be novel in Europe? It, less so. And I think that some of the places, to sort of answer your question again, where they might not feel so comfortable is, for instance, in Poland, which is attempting to to, to be part of the European Union. Um, part of the European Union calls for e- equality, basically, between, you know, for gays and lesbians, whereas there was a, um, a gay pride march that was canceled, essentially, in, in, um, in Poland. And I would imagine uh, the overt religiousness of a country. Uh, Europe is generally considered not very church-going and, exactly. and therefore less moralistic, whereas Poland is probably the most church-going part of Europe. An excellent observation. Although, you know, I have to say I was somewhat surprised when Spain decided to kind of pursue gay marriage and then passed it, the legislation, because there's still, it's not as, again, it's not as religious, religious as Poland, but there's certainly that, um, that um, historical religious factor. But then again, religion doesn't factor into China's lack of acceptance for, you know, gays and lesbians. It's, it's not religion there at all. It's more social 
and family structures that are that are preventing that. So, so it's an interesting question. I think it's it's more complex, though. Yeah. Now you mentioned the gay pride parades. Yeah. Uh, are these a, a global phenomenon? Uh, American, European? Yeah. What are they? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Gay prides. They started in sixty. Ooh, we're going to sixty nine uh, with the Stonewall riots in New York City, and so we've had them in New York. The first year after that, which marked that, became the first gay pride. So say nineteen seventy, I guess, um, and then it. Uh, paralleled in in LA and different places, and now more and more cities in the United States, even places like you know Savannah and and, and places in North Carolina, Tennessee, you know, all sorts of more traditional conservative places have gay pride. But it's really in Europe, it's a much more recent phenomenon. Like even in France, ten years ago, the gay pride celebration was minuscule. Now it attracts close to a million people. In Brazil, there are almost countless gay pride celebrations, which might be surprising again because it's. A, a very religious country, and it's sort of backwards in terms of the way they treat gays and lesbians in some places. But they have parades in Sao Paulo that routinely attract a million people. Now, Ed, are there any gay pride parades or festivals in particular that would actually be worth traveling for? Oh, what, what would the real question. biggies? In, in fact, it's one of the statistics that we probably, hopefully, will talk about, about what gets gay people out there and what's a way to market gay pe- to gay people is events, big events, and gay prides are one of the biggest. Um, we do an article every year that talks about here, here are the top 10, you know, most popular, here are the top 10 offbeat. We, we, we kind of slice it and dice it in different ways. But in San Francisco, L.A., um, San Diego, for instance, there's a huge multi-day celebrations that include not just a parade, but also cultural, thing, you know, movie, film festivals. And um, San Diego actually rents out the entire zoo and has what they call a zoo party. So now are, they, look, are these on the same day uh, everywhere in the world? They try to vary them a little bit, but most of the United States, most of the ones in America take place around in the sort of May, June, July time frame. Because I've been to the one in Berlin, and I believe it's early in the summer. And yeah, exactly. It's early in the summer because typically the European ones will also be in June, July because that's their best weather. Palm Springs takes place much later, like October, November, because of, again it's too hot as as does the ones in do the ones in Arizona and, and some other southern cities where it gets just too hot in June. Okay, now let me talk just a little bit about preconceptions people have and so on. Uh, a lot of people think gay travel means um, you know um, just casual sex and mm-hmm. like let's just let's go um to what degree you're you're selling gay travel um to what degree is it you know that kind of hedonism or is that a mis- misconception no well you know i mean you know whether you're gay or straight a lot of people use holidays and as a time to kind of you know they're away from work and they're just sort of more relaxed and it is a is a time for a lot of people i mean think of straight people on spring break i mean <laughs> you know okay. you, you wouldn't want to say just because the kids are all you know screwing around for spring break that that's all that travel is because i mean I believe travel is so much more than that. But I think that is a component of it. I mean, I think to deny the sexual component of anybody's travel would be, you know, naive in a sense. It's, it's just one small part of it. I mean, gay people travel for so many reasons. As you mentioned, gay pride, and there's all sorts of other events. I, I would think if, you'd, if you wanted to take a cruise and you're mm-hmm. gay, a gay cruise would be more comfortable. You're just people who accept you. Exactly. That's exactly true. In fact, cruises... As in the mainstream world, gay cruises are one of the fastest-growing segments. They're r- routinely selling out boats of 2,000 or more, and including that includes women. There's a women's uh, tour company, a cruise and tour company called Olivia, that routinely sells out big ships. But the big story really is Atlantis Events, which is selling out its first 3,200 passenger all-gay cruise. I mean, that's huge news. Even in the straight world, that's pretty big. Now, would a would a gay traveler obviously or, or automatically prefer a gay cruise to a just a uh, mixed cruise? No, absolutely not. In fact, I know many, many, you know, we, we have so many people that we can poll regularly and we talk to these people all the time. There are lots of gay people who really prefer just to go with their partner on a mainstream cruise. Now, I've got, I've got a gay friend and he was on a cruise and he said um, they announced like Friends of Dorothy meeting at the pub at 4 o'clock or something like that, and that was sort of a code for all the gay travelers to get together and see who's on the boat. Exactly. Now, is that, is that actually a code because people who might be homophobic wouldn't want the crews to announce gay travelers get together on the third yeah, deck? Yeah, because, you know, they may want to, they just may want to have some privacy and not be, have, like, looky lose or any sort of danger, because sometimes, you know, people have gotten harassed on those boats, and it doesn't happen often. So I'm, have... I'm clueless, Ed. Tell me more about Friends of Dorothy. What oh, does sure. that mean? What, where do they Dorothy get that word? Dorothy is, um, you know, from The Wizard of Oz, and uh, the Friends of Dorothy is sort of a code for saying, you know, the gays and lesbians. And it, it's sort of an understood kind of funny, tongue-in-cheek almost um, allusion to, to Judy Garland, who is actually her death set off Stonewall riots, which is why gay pride started. So so it's sort of... Um, it's sort of like Friends of Bill would be for the Alcoholic Anonymous set, you know? Is that right? Yeah, and you'll see that, too, because, hmm. you know, the people on cruises, 
it's all about drinking. So the poor friends of Bill Guy, you know, they need all the help they can get. <laughs> wow. What other um, codes are there that people would look for? When well, they're another one. Another one that's really interesting, and, and it's actually been adopted by a lot of mainstream companies, is the the use of the rainbow flag. Which the rainbow flag really is, has been adopted by gays and lesbians as as their own flag. Actually, many tourism bureaus' websites now have a little rainbow flag, so that's an inoffensive little symbol to gays and lesbians that it's. Click there for gay-specific information, and if you didn't know about it, you might not really click on it. Right. Now, there's actually some confusion in Europe, I've heard, because a lot of city halls fly the rainbow flag, but it's the peace flag. It's the Pache flag. The flag. Yeah, the Pache Italian flag. Pache and flag, and yeah. the, the uh, <laughs> unknowing tourist goes, what's, what's with the, 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 uh, the gay flag in this town here? That's right. I, I actually had the same thought when I was in Berlin two, a year ago, and it was all just because of the war. <laughs> so what's the difference between the gay flag and the uh, peace flag? Oh, the word Pache. And I, I think the, the, I think the strips, the bands, there might be fewer bands on the Pache sign and okay. different, slightly fewer colors. Uh, gay people are probably in favor of peace, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're all about peace. <laughs> is that fair? Okay. Hey, I'm talking with Ed Salvato. He is the editor, the travel editor of Out and About. It's a web magazine, and the website is outandabout.com. Ed, it is great to talk to you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about same-sex weddings sure. and travel. Sure. Uh, do people actually uh, leave the United States to go to a place that will marry people of the same sex, and does that uh, work for them back home? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we saw that statistically with both. Well, first of all, if you take it in the United States, when civil unions were instituted in Vermont, for the first two years, 90% of the civil unions performed were from out-of-state couples who wanted the legal recognition, even if it weren't, wasn't going to be recognized in their state. Similarly, we've seen a huge um, influx from um, the United States into Canada for people to take care of actual legal weddings. Because you don't have to be Canadian to be married there. So Americans are actually legally married when they're in Canada. So it was a huge number. And in fact, Canada released this study that said that uh, they would could attribute about a, uh, they were projecting about a billion dollars worth of economic activity based on all those weddings. Because if you think about it, every wedding will have a little entourage and wedding, you know, flowers and catering and all this sort of stuff. So there's an economic boon. To Canada it as well. makes a billion dollars a year. On no, not yet. They were projecting that. You know, one of the most popular things when I'm talking about travel is honeymoon places, or mm-hmm. uh, anniversary places, or romantic getaways. Now, what's a great uh, honeymoon getaway for a, uh, a straight couple might. Not not be great for a gay couple because uh, you'd want to be comfortable with some public display of affection, I would imagine. Where would be a good place for a gay honeymoon? One of the most recent places as a picture-perfect gay honeymoon destination is Provincetown because, first of all, you can legally get married there and then you, you are in a place that is really magical. Provincetown is a magical place, and it's a very gay popular. Uh, there's lots of gay businesses, guest houses, all that where, sort of where stuff. Where is Provincetown? Provincetown is the very tip of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Really? Yeah, and it's really phenomenal. I mean, it really is quite spectacular. So, ne- so list five places in the United States where uh, a little public display of affection between gay people is really not going to raise eyebrows, outside, okay. of, outside of San Francisco. San Francisco, of course. Um, you know, uh, I'd say West Hollywood, California, uh, New York, um, Palm Springs, uh, Key West, or you know maybe maybe more Fort Lauderdale now. Key West is sort of waning as a des- gay destination, and um, Provincetown. I think that would be a nice list okay. of five places. Yeah. I spend three months a year in Europe, faking like I'm checking into hotel rooms as I check my guidebook uh, hotel listings. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I'm with uh, a fellow researcher who's a guy, and I up, go up there and I say, um, uh, "Do you have a double room?" And they look at these two guys and they say, "Do you want a twin beds or a double bed?" and out of a, a hundred visits, ninety-nine of them don't even bat an eye. They just simply say, "Do you want a double bed or twin beds?" Right. Do you find in most of the world, gay people need to take twin beds and then rearrange the furniture, or what's the story there? <laughs> yeah, that, it's, it's sort of the um, that's the ancient question. I mean, that's really uh, why we focus so heavily on our accommodations recommendations because we want people to avoid that embarrassment. It, it, a gay couple, men or two women, go up to a counter. Sometimes the, the one of the guys will kind of hang back by the magazine rack. Well, yeah. you know, and it takes a little bit of bravery. You're almost coming out to a pr- complete stranger in front of a bunch of people to say, "I want one bed." <laughs> it, it still happens, and it's it happens, but more and more and less and less, I would say, in the major cities and major chains. Major chains are getting more and more sensitized, and the boutique hotels usually more sensitized. And often, you know, the front the front desk staff typically lots of them are gay. I'm a big guidebook guy, and I know there are some gay guidebooks. Yeah. Are, is there one that's particularly good? Give us a thumbnail sketch of what's out there and why they're valuable. Sure. Um, y- y- we actually we actually published guides, and then we stopped because um, we were 
brought everything online, and I'm not trying to self-promote, but we actually have 83 travel guides online, and a lot of gay people who travel a lot just like they're electronic, they're early adopt, adopters. They just want to plug into the information from any computer in the world. But mm-hmm. I also am a big book person, too, and I love um, the, the mainstream ones that very casually and nonchalantly discuss gay and lesbian travel. So which ones are, are hip that way? Lonely Planet. Mm-hmm. It's great. Fromers is pretty good. Voters mm-hmm. has gay guides that are pretty good. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they're really good. Um, and some of the some of them are trying to focus a little bit more on like more niche stuff. Like instead of doing a gay, gay guide to the U.S., which doesn't sell very well, they may just do gay guides to certain cities like San Francisco, New York. I think that'll be a trend that you're going to see. Right. And there's also Damron, which is by gays for gays, and it's but it's more of listing. It's not so much you know mm-hmm. editorially driven. So so that's not really. I don't think what you're what you're thinking of. Right. Now, when you're using a guidebook, that would be, I mean, you could use any guidebook to get general good travel information, but what specific areas are of most concern to gay travelers? I would imagine uh, rooms. Uh, That's the first and foremost important, especially in a, a resort area. Like, most gay travelers don't really want to be surrounded by heterosexual families. It's, it's not really kind of that much, that interesting to them, you know, right. uh, except for gays with families. That's yeah. a little different. And then restaurants, probably not a concern. No, that's yeah, that's huge. It's because you want to kind of what we emphasize is okay. Give people give people recommendations that will be if you're going to spend one night in a city, this is the restaurant you want to go to have the gay quintessential gay experience. Okay. Yeah. And then I would imagine any city has clubs that gay travelers are going to want to know yeah, about. Yeah, for, for the most part, uh, there's going to be bars and clubs. The, the interesting thing comes when you're trying to sleuth up. up the underground bar in Istanbul, oh, you know, they exist, but they change so frequently. The, mm-hmm. That's kind of why the electronically delivered information that we provide, I think, is pretty good for that because we, we, try, we try to keep it updated. You know? So you do work to have this guidebook kind of material on your website. Yeah, we have 83, about 83 of them, and some of them are very, very big. Very good. I'm talking with Ed Salvato. He is the travel editor of Out and About, which is a great source of information for gay and lesbian travelers, outandabout.com. Ed, thanks a lot for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy travels. Thank you very much. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome. Fremdes, étrangers, strangers. Glücklich zu sehen. Je suis enchanté. Happy to see you, bleibe rest to stay. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. Im cabaret, au cabaret, du cabaret. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Welcome and bienvenue, welcome. Im cabaret, au cabaret, du cabaret. Leave your troubles outside. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.